Bibles to Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9. We finished Mark chapter 8. We're halfway through Mark, and we are at lesson 36. Now, it has been longer than that because some of these lessons, like our last lesson, has gone over a period of two or three weeks. Um, so we are halfway through, and I know that we have at least another... 30 lessons to go to, to finish Mark. Mark chapter 9, we'll begin reading in verse 1. We'll start with Eliza, and as we do, we'll just read around. Um, if you would read, we're going to read through verse 13. Jesus as their master teacher. They were 
they had been enrolled in Bible College 101 and it had been pretty intensive to this point. They had had their thoughts patterns challenged, they had their culture challenged, they had their way of life challenged, they had had every aspect of their life challenged by Christ up to this point. But just because they were spending each day learning ministry lessons from Christ does not mean that they fully understood who he was or what he was teaching them. Their understanding, although it was growing daily, was still incomplete. It was essential that the disciples truly comprehend Christ's teachings before he left them to continue his work on earth. And being the greatest teacher of all time, he was careful to give them truth in times and ways it could be assimilated, it could be understood, it could be brought into their life. When the disciples understood one part, Christ would move on to the next part. In the days leading up to this occasion, Jesus had led his, his apostles to a beautiful place called Caesarea Philippi, nestled in the foothills of Mount Hermon. Situated in Syria, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, Caesarea Philippi is the location of one of the largest springs feeding the Jordan River. Its abundant water supply makes the area very fertile and attractive for false or for pagan worship. Scholars note that the city was built atop a rock about 100 feet tall and 500 feet wide at the base of Mount Hermon, where ruins of more than 20 ancient temples were found. It was an appropriate place to highlight Christ's unique message, as it was the site of numerous false temples of his day. It is believed that Mount Hermon was the high mountain to which Jesus brought Peter, James, and John, his three closest followers, for an experience they would never forget. The text we read details one of the most remarkable moments in the life of Christ. One that revealed in no uncertain terms exactly who he was and what he brings. This occasion is often referred to as the transfiguration of Christ. To transfigure means to give a new and typically exalted or spiritual experience. To transform outwardly and usually for the better. In this case, the exalted experience was an outward revelation of the glory of God. It was an outward revelation of the glory of God. I want us to notice as we look at this in verse 1 and 2, the connection. The connection. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain, apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. One of the key lessons that the disciples had just learned in Mark chapter 8 was that the life of a follower of Christ comes at a cost. Over the past few weeks, we've looked at the last part of Mark chapter 8, and we've, we've looked at the cost of being a disciple, of a follower of Christ. And we made the comment that in the Western world, Christianity to this point has been very cheap. It really has not costed 
much of anything for a believer or for a person to accept Christ. I think I talked last week about how I remember when I went to Pakistan and I met people that had literally physically suffered for their faith, where it actually cost them their health, their family, their home, their job. In many ways, we have it easy. But there is still a cost associated with following Christ. Jesus told them in Mark 8.34, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He was clear that many in the world would live to save their lives, but lose them in the end. He added the rhetorical question, again, we looked at it last week, What shall it profit a man if he gain, shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Our lives must be given to Christ if we are to truly become His disciples. I want to repeat that because it's a core thought. Our lives must be given to Christ if we are to truly become His disciples. No longer is it my life. No longer is it what I want. Instead, it's God's life living in and through me. But our reward is not only do we understand the glorious revelation of Christ, but we know that one day He will come again in eternity in His presence will be our joy as we reign with Him in His millennial kingdom. If we are to be given, if we are to truly become His disciples, we must give Him our lives. And the reward for doing that is understanding the glorious revelation of Christ and reigning with Him in His millennial kingdom and for all eternity. The lesson of Mark 8 continues in Mark 9, but there is an apparent contradiction in verse 1. In verse 1 he says that, that, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Some falsely have suggested that since all of the apostles died awaiting the return of Christ, that this statement is false. Others have suggested that Christ actually came back around 70 A.D. for His second coming. That also is false. When taken in context, however, the connection of Mark 8 and the, to Mark 9 reveals that three of His disciples would get a special glimpse of Christ's glory just six days later on the mountain. The transfiguration. There, there, although there is an apparent contradiction, there is no contradiction here. Because of the events that took place in Mark chapter 9. There are rewards for faithfulness to Jesus and His cause. If this concept were not so important, Christ would not have repeated it over and over and over again. In 1 Corinthians 3, He says, Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. Revelation 22, 12 says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. So let, if you would, turn over to the discussion question part of your paper. 
what are some other rewards of being a disciple of Christ? We know that there's a cost. We looked at the cost last week. But what are some of the rewards of being a disciple of Christ? Anybody have any idea? Crowns. The Bible talks about seven different crowns that can be that a person can receive. So at, at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, we can receive crowns. What are some other rewards? Go to heaven. Okay. Can anybody think of any rewards that we might experience right now on this earth? You get to be part of a new family. Part of a new family. We're adopted into the family of God. Other ideas? What about peace? That's the one that I was thinking of. The peace that passes understanding. When, when troubles and problems arise, it does not have to shake us to our core. It does not have to knock us out. We have the peace that passes understanding as we follow Him. As we serve as His disciple. There are many different rewards, both now and in the future, that we can receive as we seek to follow Christ. Although there is a cost... God also tells us that there is a payment. That He, if I could use that terminology, that He will reward us based upon our service. We, as we consider the connection, look at the change in Mark three or Mark nine three. And His raiment became shiny, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can whiten them. At some point, while Peter, James, and John were with Jesus on the mountain, he was transfigured before them. Matthew's account of this event reads in verse 2, And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Again, I think I mentioned it. No, it was Wednesday night when I mentioned it. But one of the most challenging passages of Scripture for me personally there are many of them. When, as it relates to a hero of the faith, is when Moses came off the mountain. And he was so close to God that his face shone. And the people around him said, Moses, put a veil over your face. Cover your face because it's so bright. When Jesus was transfigured, it was brighter than Moses' face at that point. His face did shine as the sun. I don't recommend it, but has anybody ever tried to look directly into the sun? You try? My eyes as I look. You get black spots in your eyes. If you use a telescope and look into the sun, you can actually ruin your eyebrows. It's so bright. Can you imagine what it must have been like for James and Peter and John there? This was clearly a supernatural event. Jesus appeared to his disciples in all of his majestic splendor. <coughs> we call it the Shekinah glory of God. It was the brilliance seen by Moses in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament. And it may have been 
the occasion on John's mind as he wrote verse four, John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter and John and James got to experience a glimpse of Jesus Christ in the full glory of God. Peter, who was Mark's primary source of information for this gospel, was touched greatly by the sight. Years later, in 2 Peter, he wrote, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. And when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. When you can see Jesus for who he is, whether physically or by faith, your life will be changed. When you can see Jesus, when, when Isaiah saw Christ in in or saw the glory of God in Isaiah chapter 6, his life was never the same. When Paul saw the glory of God on the Damascus road, his life was never the same. When you can see God for who He is, your life will be changed. And the more time you spend with Him, the more you'll see His glory. There was a reason why Moses' face shone when he came off that mountain. He had just spent, if I remember the story correctly, 40 days with Christ on the mountain. The more time we spend with Christ, the more time we spend in our Bible, the more time we spend with God's people, the more time we spend in prayer, the more time we spend in Christ, the closer we will draw to Him. It's kind of like a human relationship. If you are separated because of time or distance, the, the human relationship will begin to suffer. It's not to say that the relationship disappears. But it's not the same as if you're directly with that person. I would challenge you today to, to make a commitment to spend time with him daily. What's discussion question five, Elijah? Elijah. Number five, give the examples of others in scripture is not wise and how their lives change. I gave you some of the answers already, but who are some of the others in scripture who saw Christ and had their lives changed? Any ideas? We're quiet this morning. Those couple I gave you. Paul. He saw the, the, the glory of God, the light shining from heaven on, on the Damascus road. His life was never the same. Can you think of any others? Moses. Zacchaeus. That's one I hadn't thought of, but yes. Another one. Jonah have his life changed? Belly of the whale? He at least was more willing to follow. I wouldn't say he was totally obedient, but he was at least 
partially obedient. The more time we spend with Him, the closer we will get to Him. The closer we get to God, the more our life will change to reflect who He is. It's what the Bible talks about in Romans chapter 12. And be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As we spend time with Him, our mind, our, our entire life gets transformed to become more like Him. As we saw the connection and we saw the change, there was also a correction that was necessary. In verses nine or 4 through 13, I'm not going to read them all, Jesus had to correct His disciples. Instruction and correction are closely linked. The disciples watched all that was taking place before their eyes. They were understandably amazed. And the Bible even says sore afraid. I don't know about you, but I think that I would be if I was in their condition also. Sore afraid. And their words to Jesus showed their inadequate understanding of God and His work. Jesus took time to instruct His followers by correcting their understanding. We see that He corrected their theology. He corrected their theology. And as the Lord was transfigured in Mark 4, we find that Elias and Moses appeared with Jesus. Luke's Gospel records the topic of this conversation. Um, and behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Notice that they spoke of Christ's work of, on, uh, the work of Christ on the cross. Why was it Elias or Elijah and Moses who appeared with Jesus? One scholar wrote on this passage, this is because these two were predominant, preeminently the representatives of the law and the prophets. These two great divisions of the Old Testament which pointed forward to the coming Messiah. Moses, the great lawgiver. Elijah, the first and in some ways the greatest of the prophets. It is also noteworthy to note that these men entered into heaven in different ways. Moses died, was buried, and presented himself in this text as a resurrected body. Elijah, on the other hand, was cut up in heaven in a whirlwind. Similarly, those of us who know the Lord will either enter heaven by dying or by the rapture when Jesus comes and takes us home. 2 Corinthians 5 8 says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 51 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In response to the sight of these two resurrected men, and because he didn't know what else to say, Peter foolishly opened his mouth. Sometimes, or most often, if we don't know what to say, it's best we just keep our mouths shut. And there's a lesson right there in this passage. Um, that, that we could just spend some time on also. But Peter, the Bible records to us, um, verse, verse 6, For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. Peter did not know what to say, so he just said the first thing that came to his mind. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. One for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. The implication of Peter's words was that Jesus was somehow equal to Moses and Elijah. 
Remember, Jesus is God. The law of Moses and the prophetic work of Elijah simply point to him. As God the Father made clear with the pronouncement that followed, Jesus is not to be merely prominent. He is bigger than that. He is to be preeminent. Jesus is not only to be prominent, he is to be preeminent. It was essential that his followers understand this for themselves and for the um, spreading of the truth to the generations to come. His followers needed to understand the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ was God. So he corrected their theology. He also corrected their, wit their testimony. As the great witness of the Father gave way to silence, Mark records that Jesus and his disciples made their way down the mountain. And at verse 9, And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. Why would Christ allow them to witness his transfiguration and then deny them the opportunity to tell others about what they had seen? The reason, as far as I can determine, is because their understanding was incomplete. They were missing the crowning jewel of the resurrection. Had they shared what they saw without following up with Jesus' resurrection, their account would have raised more questions than an answer. See, in general, the people still believed that Jesus was going to take over leadership of the country in some revolutionary way. He was going to cast off the Romans and set up his earthly kingdom. By, the, by his comment, it seems Peter wanted to establish an earthly headquarters right there on Mount Hermon. But Jesus corrected their testimony by commanding them to wait until after he was resurrected when they could more understand fully what they had seen. He also corrected their thinking. Peter, James, and John asked Jesus a very interesting question as they traveled down the mountain. Why say the scribes that Elias must come first? They were referring to Malachi's prophecy of Elijah's work in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. But they were looking to the wrong coming. In their minds, Jesus had come, and then Elijah came. But Jesus made the point that the work of Elijah as prophesied had already happened. Who was the, the fulfillment of that prophecy? Do you remember? Anybody remember? Who was the forerunner of Christ? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. When, when Jesus was talking in this passage about Elias had already come, he was talking about John the Baptist had come to prepare the way. This illustrates the reality that we often entertain thoughts that fit conventional thinking and are nevertheless wrong. Jesus was helping them dig a little deeper into something that seemed contradictory because they did not understand it. But there are no contradictions in Scripture. God's Word is, sh is sure. You will not find a contradiction in Scripture. If we do find a seemingly contradiction, it is simply our understanding doesn't quite grasp it. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus refers to John the Baptist as serving in a similar way to Elijah. Matthew 17, he says, But I say unto you that Elias has come already, and they knew him not, but they have done to him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall the Son of Man suffer them. The disciples understood that he spake of them, of John the Baptist. Perhaps the disciples felt some information overload by all that was being revealed to them at this point. But by allowing his disciples to see him transfigured, Jesus was simply giving them a glimpse of what was to come 
and of the reward that waits all who follow after him. Jesus was giving them a glimpse of what was to come in the reward of all that follow after him. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the time that we have this morning. Lord, we thank you for the book of Mark and the truths that we find in there. It's so practical. Lord, help us to become followers of you. Help us to continually, day after day, to give ourselves over completely to you. Not my will, but your will. In your name we pray. Amen.